0: Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada.
1: It's interesting that life presents us with endless opportunities and possibilities, At least that's how we like to take a look at it here at Success. When we take advantage of these prospects, seeking wins, gains, accomplishments, those things, we often learn that the greatest successes emerge when we lean on the help of those around us. And that's kind of crazy to think of it that way. So join me as I talk with John Levy, he's a behavioral scientist, and New York Times bestselling author of the book, You're Invited, The Art and Science Of cultivating influence. In this episode, we discuss how influence, belonging, trust, and community help us breed success. This one's a little deep. Pay attention. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success magazine podcast. Today, I've got John Levy. He just wrote a book, and you've got to get it. It's called You're Invited. He dives into the science of connection, trust, and belonging. John? welcome into the show money
0: i am so excited for this i i mean like seriously i'm back from vacation i'm like full of energy and i can't wait to share super cool stuff
1: i want to talk about influence but first um right before we started i saw a picture of colossus and i'm, oh, yeah. I'm a fan of x-men Let's see if i can so. get it
0: to to zoom in on
1: in um, John's background, he's got a drawing of Colossus from X-Men Marvel. Tell us about that, man. That's awesome.
0: Uh, So I grew up really, really geeky. And my dad uh, was an artist. And uh, when I was a kid, he was friends with a bunch of other artists. Some of them worked for Marvel. And uh, they managed to get me an original hand-drawn Colossus from Jim Lee, who's a legend in the comic book industry. And so uh, he won Best Dad. (laughs) day. And you got it framed for me, and so it now sits in my background. Uh, and I just think it's it's super cool to have a, a hero up there.
1: Did uh, you did that influence more of you loving Marvel comics, or did that not?
0: Oh yeah, of course. When you so there's this uh, there are two kind of funny uh, behavioral biases. Like I, I'm a behavioral scientist, and uh, one is something called the mere exposure effect. Can I share a crazy story with you?
1: please. Okay. So
0: in 1911, a man walks into the Louvre, the National Museum of France. It's closed on a Monday. He goes in and he uh, enters the Renaissance section and he sees a small painting that nobody really cares about. And he rips it off of the wall and he covers it in his workman's smock and eventually trying to find different ways out of the building. He just walks out the front door, gets on a bus and goes home. About 36 hours later, give or take, the police finally discover that it's missing and newspapers around the world tell stories basically about the incompetence of the (laughs) Louvre to protect their own art. And uh, the painting becomes so famous that thousands of people stand in line just to see the empty spot hanging on the wall. Three years later, through a series of crazy events, the painting is returned and When it does, once again, stories around the world, printing the painting and sharing it uh, take place. And that's the only reason any of us know which painting. You wanna take a guess?
1: It's gotta be the Mona Lisa, is it? Yeah.
0: So historically speaking, the Mona Lisa was not considered a great painting. Nobody really noticed it uh, for hundreds of years, even as a good example of Renaissance art by art historians. But when it got stolen, it became the most familiar painting in history because the painting was printed in so many newspapers and human beings have this thing called the mere exposure effect. The more we see something, the more we tend to like it and trust it. And so you asked, did it make me feel a certain allegiance to Marvel? And the answer is absolutely. Because when you're exposed to something day in, day out, you tend to like it and trust it more. It's why, One of the reasons we tend to like people who look like us, or even I did a scientific study on dating and found that if you had the same initials, you were 11.3% more likely to date because literally anything that reminds us of ourselves is more appealing or attractive because we're most familiar with us, right? We have been exposed to ourselves more than anybody else. We've been exposed to our name more than any other. And so uh, that's kind of how we operate.
1: Hmm. I like that. Who Who ended up being your favorite superhero?
0: Oh well, that's uh, that's a, a bit of a different story. That that would be Batman.
1: Oh, um, Batman. Not even in the same Marvel universe. Yeah, arena, dude. Oh my gosh. Okay, Batman's awesome too. Yes. All right.
0: Uh, that. There's that old saying: "Always be yourself. Unless you can be Batman, then
1: definitely be Batman. <laughs> that's so funny. I have heard of that. It's funny. Um, uh, all right the the subtitle of your book titled you're invited it's the art and science of connection trust and belonging yeah. and i was thinking along the lines of belonging and I, I know i know i had thought about belonging and leadership but i really didn't think about it as i because I, I did read a few of your articles <clears throat> and i read excerpts of different things you've done and i haven't i haven't jumped into the book yet but i am going to and my question to you is a long belonging as leaders, how can we use the science of influence to, to make the people that are, that, that we're either leading not knowing or even knowing uh, feel like they belong to something greater so that we can, we can have a connection and they can follow better.
0: So I'd like to answer this in parts, if that's okay. Yeah. is. Versus- When we talk about influence, what do we actually mean? Now, what most people mean is getting people to do stuff, right? Now, that can be considered power, right? A manipulation of force. Mm -hmm. Influence is when you have an ability that your input could have an impact on an outcome. And what I've generally found is that the things that affect that, there's like technical aspects, but let's talk about the general ones are who you're connected to, because if you're not connected to somebody, it's really tough to influence them. The second is is how much trust they have for you in that topic, right? Uh, When it comes to, let's say, ideas on leadership, I'd very much trust your opinions. If I need open heart surgery, I'm gonna go to somebody else, right? And then the third is the sense of belonging, which is that when you are part of a group, a community, when you feel like you belong, the impact that you have on one another is much greater. Uh, and sometimes even people have referred to it as like group consciousness or group act or group speak, right? There's mm-hmm. certain things that happen when you are part of a group identity. So that means that if we want to be influential, we just need to figure out how to connect with people, how mm-hmm. to build trust quickly, and how to create that sense of belonging. Yeah the other thing that's important before we dive into it is we have to understand why belonging is so important. Mm -hmm. And the simple answer is that for human beings, we didn't survive as a species because we're the strongest or the fastest. We just aren't from like a a survival perspective. We rank kind of low on our our raw characteristics. Yeah. Uh, In fact, you know, uh, our, our cousin species, the Neanderthals, mm-hmm. uh, it's believed that they were stronger and smarter than us. Wow. But what we do better is we connect, we work together, we can hunt as groups, we can build trust so that communities can exist, so that we can share resources. And for us as humans, across the board, belonging is absolutely critical. If you look at the greatest predictor of human longevity. It's not a kale cleanse or having a keto diet. Uh, sure?
1: stuff. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I mean,
0: the research keeps panning out on that one. Uh, the number two greatest predictor is strong social ties, close friends and family. The number one greatest predictor, and this is after genetics because we can't control genetics. I'm talking about things that we can actually affect. The number one is something called social integration. How many people you come in contact? Within the uh, research by Paul J. Zak found that when you look at company stock value employee sick days and profitability you could track it to the level of trust at an organization and when we look at team success Google did a project that they called Aristotle that asked what gets teams to perform disproportionately well and the greatest predictor was psychological safety the idea that you feel safe enough within a group that you won't be kicked out or punished if you share an opposing view. So Mm -hmm. this all points to the same thing. If we want teams, individuals, whatever it is, to perform at a high level, one of the most important things we need to look at is, do they feel like they belong? Because for humans, that was the basically the base characteristic of survival. If you were all alone in the wilderness, you probably weren't going to survive. But if you were part of the community, you did.
1: Have you taken a time to define what belonging means to you so that it's clear? So
0: there's a fantastic collection of research that I didn't do. Originally it was done by these two guys, McMillan and Chavez. And what they discovered is that when you look at community and belonging and community are maybe not the same thing, but they're very closely tied. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're kind of four characteristics. So first of all, they noticed that you're not, it's not that you belong or don't, it's that you feel like you do. For human beings, we're emotional, right? Then we justify our decisions our emotional decisions with really bad logic. And so feeling like we belong is where it's at, not fulfilling a criteria of, you know, here's your stamp of approval, you're on the inside. And so in order for that to happen, they describe four characteristics. The first is membership. There's a clear line of who's on the inside and who's on the outside. So, the Girl Scouts accomplish this through their uniforms and doctors accomplish this through either uh, passing some medical tests or knowing the language, right? There's an entire language that doctors have that I don't understand, similar to you can tell if somebody was in the military based on the language that they have. That's true, right? There's an inside and there's an outside. The second is that there's influence. What does that mean? It means that if I'm following a celebrity on Instagram, there's going to be no community there. Because I have no influence on the group of people, it's a one-directional conversation. But if I am part of—and I'm not—but if I'm part of a church, because I'm Jewish, uh, then participating in the, you know, weekly or prayer reading or whatever it is, mm-hmm. give me a sense of influence, even though I might not have influence directly on the leader of the church or on the pope. Got right. it. My opinion matters, my voice is heard. The third is that basically there's an alignment between uh, what we want to accomplish and where we're going. So I'm not going to feel like I belong in a knitting group because I don't knit. (laughs) Where they're going is different than what I want to accomplish. And then finally, uh, there's this... uh, common history or values. And so if we were to bring it to a company rather than a religious organization, the questions are, how do you allow people to feel like they're part of the inside of the, of the company? Are there common jokes? Is there a really unique application process where they feel like they've earned their way in, kind of like the way the Navy SEALs earn their spot on the teams, Right. How do we give people a sense of influence? Are they just sitting at home getting assignments or is their voice heard? Is there a way to communicate that's safe where I'm not going to feel like I'm being kicked out or punished if I bring up a problem? You know, One of these kind of funny things that people think is that if we have very high levels of psychological safety, mm-hmm. then it's going to be really nice all the time. Actually, psychological safety, when people feel like they can really express themselves Mm -hmm. It has the potential for actually creating more conflict because the things that need to be said are actually said.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So when you look at doctors um, or medical teams, the teams that have a higher incidence of reporting problems are the ones that actually outperform because they feel safe enough to report them. Mm. the ones with low psychological safety hide the mistakes until they're too late. So there's lower rates of reporting.
1: That makes sense, man. Interesting. Uh, I, like, I like the breakdown there.
0: And so then the, the last two elements are, are you aligned on where you're going? Are the employees really clear on what you're trying to accomplish and why? What is the fight you're fighting for? What is the goal that you have? if that goal is to increase stock value, that is not a very human goal that I would want to get behind. No. Like, when was the last time you were inspired by stock?
1: I don't, never, I don't leave, not even close.
0: Exactly. Like, don't get me wrong, people enjoy money, but that's not really what tends to motivate. And in fact, high quantities of money tend to reduce the quality of people's results because they focus on the money rather than the, the thing they're trying to accomplish. Uh, so do you have some greater purpose that's real? You can't just give a fake greater purpose that's kind of like icing on mud, doesn't make a cake. right? Yeah. Uh, and then the final thing is, uh, what is the history or values that you have? So like at a company like eBay, they have this history of the Beanie Baby. Yeah. That's, that was completely made up by marketing, but people still treat it like it's real. Just well, like Harry Potter enthusiasts know that Harry Potter isn't a true story, but they have a shared history of the tales and tribulations. So that's, uh, those are the things that really trigger it. And so you can kind of look at your company and say, hey, my employees are brilliant but it's pretty clear they don't know what their North Star is. What is it that we're actually trying to accomplish that will give them a sense that they're working towards something, right? Or you can say, oh my God, I've created a company of people who are really good at following instructions, but mindlessly follow them even when they're not the right things. Am I giving people enough influence Mm -hmm. so that they actually feel like they're heard, and the reason that's so important, or one of the reasons, is that there's this weird characteristic of human beings called the, the IKEA effect, mm-hmm. and it works like this. Uh, Tristan, what time is it
2: that we're recording this? Uh, Eight
1: twenty one a. m. Perfect Pacific Pacific.
0: Just me asking you for that favor. It turns out that you like me more as a byproduct. The IKEA effect states that we care more about our IKEA furniture because we had to invest effort into it. Anything we invest effort into, we tend to care about more.
2: Mm. And
0: so if you give people a sense of influence where they're thinking about and putting effort into something, they will care more about the result. If I just tell you what to do, you've limited the amount and impact that that person can have. And unless they're really appreciated for it, it doesn't seem as valuable.
1: That makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like saying, when we lead the horse to water, right? Very similar process. So not just, hey, give him the answer or show him exactly what to do, help him through that whole process so you kind of grow closer to each other. I have a question that I don't know that you've jumped into or not It has to do along the lines of social media and influencers. Have you studied how some or why some influencers grow to get millions of followers versus some who just either don't get as many or maybe even die out?
0: So I I think that's kind of asking a slightly different question. And if I can, um, So social media isn't really community in most cases. And I think that people overly engage around the social part rather than the media part. What makes great media has been known for generations, right? Great storytelling, things that are sensational, things that are enticing. Now, there are trends that change over time. This isn't something I've ever personally studied, but, you know, great headlines are great headlines. And so there are certain things that the brain responds to. One is novelty. There's a section of the brain called the SNVTA. It's the major novelty center of the brain. And when it's triggered, it causes a desire to explore and understand. And so... You look at some of the great social media producers and there's they toy between one, which is consistency. You know what you're getting on their channel. And two, novelty. You get something new or different.
2: Another critical
0: characteristic is something called fluency. Fluency is how easy it is to consume something. Mm. and. If you look at the great authors, you'd expect all of their writing to be at like a college level. But it turns out, I think it's something like a fifth or sixth grade reading level, meaning it's really easy to consume. Makes sense. And so the people who know how to make their media as consumable as possible, who know how to use fluency, End up doing much better. If you look at bestsellers, they tend to be really readable. You know, Fifty Shades of (laughs) Gray was an incredibly popular book. But it, if you notice, it was wildly novel. Nobody had written a book in that genre for that audience publicly, really. And if you actually look at the quality of the writing, it's not Shakespeare, that's for sure. I'm saying this as if I've read any of it. I've mostly heard reports, but And I've never seen the movies. But it's kind of one of these things that's uh, almost become a cultural meme. Uh, I think one of the big things to realize is that human beings have been sharing knowledge for millennia orally, Mm -hmm. right? We have an oral tradition of storytelling. And the question is, is the content remarkable? Is it worth remarking about? like would you talk about it because if it's not worth talking about then it's not culturally significant so when people are producing content you have to ask huh what would make somebody actually want to talk about this or respond to it now listen i'm not some masterful social media content producer it's not my skill set mm-hmm. um but we consistently see themes like this and several others throughout most great content producers.
1: All right, dude, good answer. I took notes on that one. That was good. <laughs> all right, so in, in researching what you were doing, you mentioned that human behavior is contagious. And, and we've seen it before in, mm-hmm. in the business world, in the stock market, in the real estate market. We see it all the time. Tell me if that's similar to, because I've also heard the term social contagion. Yes. Yeah.
0: Jonah Berger, me- I think, wrote a book even titled that or something similar. Brilliant researcher from University of <clears throat> Pennsylvania. Uh, so the I think the first big study that was looked at was by um, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. You know how, do you remember in the 2000s, the big topic was that? Uh, the obesity epidemic.
1: I remember that.
0: Yeah, that this generation will be the first generation to live, have a shorter lifespan than the previous one because we've gained so much weight.
1: Wow, That and,
0: is- But when you talk about an epidemic, there's kind of two types. The first is a epidemic that spreads from person to person like COVID or a cold. Mm-hmm. The other is something that's a percentage of the population. So when you look at epidemic of uh, you know, Alzheimer's, I'm not sure if it's reached epidemic levels, but uh, to the best of our knowledge, Alzheimer's isn't passed from person to person, right? So it means that there's something that erupts kind of socially that's independent from different people. And so they asked, is obesity an epidemic that's just you a know, percentage of the population, or is it passing from person to person? And what they found was absolutely startling, that if you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by 45%. Your friends who do not know them have a 20% increased chance, and their friends have a 5% increased chance. Now, this kind of effect, maybe not the exact numbers, but this kind of effect is also true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits, and so on. And this shouldn't surprise us. And I'll give you an example. Tristan, do you have a best friend or somebody you're really close with? Yeah, I do. By any chance, do they have any kids?
1: Well, my wife's my best friend and we've got two kids, there you go.
0: But let's say somebody, you're not married. Okay, actually, your wife's your best friend. Imagine your wife's parent got ill. Mm Mm-hmm that would impact them the most that negative experience would impact your wife a lot she'd begin to worry it might keep her up at night yeah and then being married to her you would worry and it might keep you up at night heck yeah so you can see the contagious effect of somebody getting sick spreads from person to person multiple degrees of separation
1: yeah Interesting
0: right so now if you were a school teacher and went into school your students would be likely affected by the fact that you're worried and tired because you've been up with your wife worrying about her father so now we're seeing how many degrees of separation suddenly
1: things spread what is this effect called or what is it uh, this nature-
0: is you could call it the contagious nature of human behavior or virality or, i mean it's that literally everything spreads across a culture and that shouldn't surprise us because that's how trends are created right people wear clothing and that idea spreads from person to person
1: okay yeah that's very true it's an interesting one that you said the clothing part i like that is that how trends are created and what what allows them to continue to grow versus stop
0: i'll be honest that's not i'm not an expert on this There was some research that I looked at about how a story goes viral on social media. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't happen the way that people think it does. We think that one person shares it, five of their friends then see it and share it. Each of them share it. It doesn't actually spread like that. Interesting. What turns out is that think about it more like if you have a really popular friend, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a really popular friend, they're probably in a lot of different places with a lot of different people. So what happens is that kind of one random person that they meet might be sick or have an idea, it reaches those people and then those people spread it in a lot of places and the people, a handful of people in those places that they went spread it to a lot of people. So if you know somebody who's followed by a few people on Twitter might share something, maybe one of those people will retweet. But the person that sees that retweet might be somebody who works for a major media outlet and they retweet it and then suddenly it goes huge. So what we see is that things enter kind of the cultural conversation more through uh, it getting to a central hub And then those central hubs are the ones that really spread it out.
1: All right, man, that makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about trust. Sure. Because a lot of the the business world that we we connect with has to do with trust. Whether we're talking about the consumer on the trust side or whether we're talking to people that that we're leading, right? Or we're working with. How do we build stronger trust? Because it's part of the subtitle. And I'm also noticing that you're saying, Like we connect with people that we tend to like or we share similarities with. And then from there, we build trust and then belonging. How does that process build?
0: So trust is kind of a funny thing. You'll notice in general, human beings do the exact opposite of what they should. (laughs) And so trust is a classic example of this. In the business world, if I want you to trust me, the tendency is I say, hey, Tristan, Uh, I'm going to take you out for a dinner so we can talk. And then I try to take you to a lavish dinner and impress you. Mm -hmm. Or I say, hey, come to our party. And then I give you a gift bag and it's full of swag. Mm -hmm. And you either throw it out or re-gift it. Or it sits in your car until your wife complains that it's piling up. Yeah. So here's the problem with both of those things. Mm Mm-hmm. Those business dinners tend to be really awkward. And if I'm throwing out your gift bag, I'm devaluing the relationships. The number of events I've gone to over the years that were sponsored and the number of brands I can actually remember that paid for those events have nothing to do with each other.
1: Interesting.
0: So let me ask you, you've gone to some business dinners over the years. Yeah. Don't you tend to find that they're you're like looking for what to talk to you hope you don't sit down next to the boring person chances are you are
1: dude i hate being sold yeah that's it and so
2: i'm actually going to push back on that if that's okay yeah
0: you we all want to know about the best but we want to know about it under very specific conditions i'm going to talk about that a little bit later if that's okay yeah that's fine so gifting tends not to work there is kind of one loophole to that and the loophole is uh are you a comic book fan
1: i love comic books yeah
0: all right so let's say if i got you an original hand-drawn signed colossus by jim lee just for you
1: <laughs> that's funny yes awesome right now
0: the reason that works is that it's a very intimate gift. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell that I've paid attention to what you care about. Yeah, and I've gone to the effort. That doesn't scale though. Like it can't work across ten thousand employees at a company. No, or even a hundred employees. Like you can maybe do it for one or two. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what what actually works? And what works is the exact opposite, which is that IKEA effect. That if we can get people to invest effort into our relationship, they'll actually care more about us. And so instead of me trying to say, Hey, can I take you out for a meal? I might say one of a few things Hey, Tristan, you're a real expert on leadership. I would love it, love it if you can recommend two books on leadership that you think are the most important. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, now you're investing effort. And when I read them and come back to you, you see that I've actually taken your advice to heart. Then I can do something I call stacking, which is you start off with a small request and then grow the requests bigger and bigger. Because as people invest more and more effort into the relationship, they'll care more and more about the results. And they'll care more about you and trust you more. Mm. And so, the the fun experiment that researchers did for this was they sent people out asking for directions that were complicated and mostly mm-hmm. they didn't get them and then they asked people for the time and once they got the time they asked for the directions and they mostly got it now notice how this is counterintuitive i'm asking for more in total time and directions mm-hmm. and it becomes more likely that i get both versus just the direction but mm-hmm. that's how we are as people when we invest effort into a relationship end up caring more about it Hmm. so that means that i want to find ways for employees customers potential applicants for a job to put in investments of effort of course there has to be reciprocity because nobody likes a taker and then what that causes is that people will care more now you can also do that through like going on a walk or working out together cooking together, which is what I do at my secret dining experience. I have 12 people come and cook together. Uh, and, but they're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. And when they sit down to eat, they find out they're sitting with Nobel laureates, Olympians, editors-in-chief, celebrities, and all that. And I've hosted is it, over 2,500 people at 266 dinners in 11 cities and four countries
1: wow do you usually pick a restaurant or no 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 the guests oh.
0: come to my home and cook
1: nice.
0: or not i don't have homes in a lot like i'm not <laughs> that's i mean i do it I also friends houses so yeah. the key is that there's there's a critical element of investing effort which is what really causes trust to develop uh for years i didn't i didn't actually know why and then I found research about something called the vulnerability loops. It turns out that the basic unit of trust is, comes from vulnerability. So Tristan, the two of us were hanging out, grabbing some coffee or something like that. I don't drink coffee, but you know, sparkling water. Uh, And we're talking and you say, John, I am so stressed. I'm, I just had COVID, I was worried I'd give it to my family, right? If I make fun of you or ignore you, Mm -hmm. trust would be reduced because you just put out a vulnerability signal. But if I say, Justin, I know how you feel. I got COVID. I was super worried I was going to give it to my wife as well. It was a train wreck. I was in bed for nine days. Let me know how I can help you. The moment that both of us have shown that we can be vulnerable to that level and that we're safe, then trust increases to that level and there's an opportunity for another vulnerability loop. Now, here's the important part people think that trust precedes vulnerability, it doesn't. If you noticed in the loop, it's true. You signaled vulnerability, I acknowledged. I signaled vulnerability, you acknowledged. We are now safe at that same level. Trust increases. Dude.
1: Which... Nice. I didn't know there was a name to that. So I've been doing that for, for a long time. And I would explain it to people. I'm like, you know what? Well, when I get to talk to CEOs, executives, and I just go for the vulnerability thing, it's like all of a sudden everything opens up. Yeah. And thank you for, for the name. I was wondering what the hell the name was. There it is. Uh, it's
0: kind of wild because... It also means that as leaders, our job is to be on the lookout for when people signal vulnerability so that we can complete the loop. Or if we're seeing that nobody is, it's on us to open up the vulnerability loop first.
1: Otherwise, would would you suggest that as leaders... We typically open the vulnerability loop, or do you suggest we wait depending on the situation? What what do you typically see?
0: So it it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, right? Uh, a vulnerability loop can be anything from me saying, "Hey, where might I be wrong about this, or what am I missing?" Right? You can see that that's a big vulnerability loop for a leader. Yeah, and if you do that kind of stuff, it has the potential of being really effective, especially if you follow up their response with appreciation rather than like abuse. Yeah. But there's also a caveat. And the caveat is when we open up vulnerability loops, we want to make sure that we are not damaging our credibility. We do not want to damage competence in, when we're in a leadership position. So it is not incompetent of you to say, hey, I'm worried I might be missing something. Can you look at this? It's also not incompetent of you to say, hey, when I was starting out with my career, I thought I needed to do these things. But over time, I realized these things are more effective because it points to a growth mindset that you have overcome something. Going to your team and saying, I feel like a total sham. I don't think I'm qualified for this job. Not necessarily appropriate. That's something to discuss with your therapist.
1: Yeah, that's different. That's funny. Not
0: with your team, because then they begin to doubt your ability to do things. Mm. And to lead. So there's, you know, and there's exceptions to all these things. There's also a higher bar often that marginalized communities or, uh have to achieve because frankly certain groups will see them as less competent to begin with so it you know the process of actually sharing those things becomes um a lot more uh volatile let's say
1: yeah that makes sense man That makes sense when any every time i hear the word influence and psychology or behavior sciences and influence In the back of my head, I'm always thinking somebody's trying to manipulate somebody else. Yep. Or or there's a sales marketing person in the room that's just waiting for that thing to be like, that's it. I'm going to use that on digital marketing. Do you get people coming in and saying, hey, teach me how to do this so that I can do a better job of selling this product or manipulating people to get them to do what I want?
0: So. The ones that say I want to manipulate people into doing what I want, I don't work for them. Uh, (laughs) And here's the difference.
2: I run a lot of events and I design
0: everything I do on behavioral science. But we have two policies. Policy number one is I have to be willing to share every technique that I've used in the design with people. Because if I feel the need to hide something, there is probably something I shouldn't be doing. And we've had to redesign events that may may have been really effective, but that were just clearly not okay, right? Uh, Because a client asked for something and I said, no, we're just not willing to do it. We're going to need to to look at it from a completely different perspective. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that trust is built on three pillars. It's honesty, that you're telling the truth, competence, that you're capable of doing the job or what people expect, and uh, benevolence, that you have other people's best interests at heart. Manipulation tends to happen when there's a misalignment of those things. So if I tell you, oh, I want you to come to a party And then you found out I was really just trying to sell you a multi-level marketing product uh, and or get you hooked on cigarettes or something. That's manipulation. When there's a misalignment between your honesty, your competence and your benevolence. But for human beings, the weird thing is that we don't value all three things equally. If Michael Jordan misses a shot You don't say he's an incompetent basketball player or LeBron, right? You say everybody misses a shot. Mm -hmm. You can still trust them to perform. But if you found out somebody was lying to you, that actually creates doubt and you begin to second guess everything they said and everything they say moving forward. Mm -hmm. So you can see honesty is actually valued more than competence. Mm -hmm. Competence is viewed as this thing that can always improve. Whereas if you have a breach in honesty, it's viewed as a character flaw that may never be able to be repaired. Got it. But there's a third
2: scenario. And that is,
0: if, let's say it was your single days and we were going to go grab a drink at a bar and I go in first and I go, hey, you know what? It's not that great in here. Let's go before you ever step foot in there. Mm -hmm. And then we go hit up another bar. If later you found out that the bar was actually really great, but I saw your ex that you'd just broken up with in there, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't say, oh, John's a liar. I can't trust him. you would be like, oh, wow, thanks for doing that. You really saved me. That could have really changed the course of the evening. Yeah. And so you can see that there can be a breach in honesty if it's done for benevolent reasons. So we value benevolence above honesty and honesty above competence.
1: Makes sense. I mean, that's what law is based on intent, right? It's intent.
0: I'm I'm not a lawyer, but uh, so there's a. But I, I will point out something really interesting here, which is manipulation occurs when there's a misalignment of benevolence, when you feel felt that one thing was taking place when really there was something else going on, and it was benefiting me. Not you. Right. So, in the sense that if I, if you found out that your surgeon was getting kickbacks for doing the surgeries, you'd have a major issue with that because you feel like you were manipulated into getting a surgery that maybe you didn't need.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's how we are, which is that for human beings, benevolence is the most important thing. And when I work with sales teams, I often discuss this. We uh, we really explore how do you demonstrate benevolence, and how do you make sure that you are doing it over the long term? Because you know the fact is that the world is small these days, and if you are constantly a jerk trying to trick people and manipulate them, nobody's going to want to do business with you in the long term. And so. When you have the customer's best interest at heart, that's when trust really develops. And the example I often give is, uh, Tristan, imagine I came to Success and I said, hey, our servers, our computer systems are up 99.999% of the time. You go, wow, they're really competent. They know how to run servers. And then a second salesperson came to you and said, Tristan, I know that for your company, Mm -hmm. having your systems up is your lifeblood. It's people being able to access your website, your podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to communicate with customers and to internally communicate with your teams.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm going to give you my phone number day or night. We will make sure those systems are up. And if anything goes wrong, you can just contact me and we will figure it out together. Who would you rather do business with?
1: Yeah, that, that person, the last person, the latter.
0: Right? And that's what's interesting, is that I didn't make a single comment about how competent our company actually was. We could be completely incompetent, but you'll still trust us more because we led with benevolence. And so when you talk about influence, influence is the ability to have an impact on an outcome or a person. When you feel that you can trust me, you will opt into that influence. But if I manipulate you, or I take advantage of you in some way, that's eventually going to come out and people aren't going to want to do business with you. Which is why, in my opinion, it's critical that you begin with benevolence. If you can't get in there with the other person, then I don't know how much of a business relationship you can really have in the long term.
1: Interesting, man. I love that approach. The benevolence approach. Uh, that's your next book, by the way, John. <laughs> it's a great, great uh, way you broke that down. Going from, from honesty, right? To be- benevolence. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. So you, really-
0: you lead with benevolence. And then the next thing is that people need to feel that you're honest, and then competence can be improved over time. But if you lack benevolence or you lack honesty, then people will see that as a character flaw. It's much harder to repair a breach in benevolence and in honesty than a breach in competence.
1: Yeah, which makes sense. Because people can forgive something that you're not so great at, right? Like you said, Michael Jordan. Can improve it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting man yeah the character flaw is the key yeah so if you're listening in entrepreneur solopreneur business owner looking in and saying where do we start to connect with our audiences deeper that should be the number one place both in person and on social right the benevolent approach so that people can have a sense that they can trust you and connect with you so that it opens up Mm -hmm. A greater audience. I love that, man. Thanks, man. That was was really. Uh, You know, when
0: when I was researching my book, "You're Invited," if I can also point out, it came out last year. Uh, um, It was. I'm actually really, really proud of it. I'm dyslexic, so I never really thought I'd be much of a writer, and uh, I remember being in total shock that it when it was when it hit the New York Times bestseller list and when the Wall Street Journal selected it as its book of the month. Wow. Uh, Yeah, it was really big deal but I'm super proud of it because it goes deep into these ideas that what actually allows us to connect, build trust, and build a sense of belonging fundamentally have a profound impact on our influence and the quality of our lives. Because the things that really matter to us, the things that actually impact our enjoyment and our experience, frankly, isn't going to be a little bit more money. It's going to be having quality relationships that impact our happiness, our longevity, and make the work actually meaningful as opposed to just another day at the office.
1: Yeah. And I think that was thrown into our face in the business world through the pandemic. It's like, yeah, yeah. a lot. It's like, what what is really important here? Right.
0: Yeah. And you see a lot of people in the great resignation leaving their companies because they have no social ties there. So they're not connected to anybody. They don't have a best friend at work, for example. Mm -hmm. And the mission of the company isn't necessarily aligned with something that they're passionate about. So why stick around if you can make more money being on a different Zoom meeting than the one that you're on right now? Or maybe reprioritize that you don't need to be working 80 hour weeks. You know, you could downshift get a smaller place out and outside the city and live a great quality of life you know surfing half the time
1: that's true that's true all right as a company listening in individual business owner if we're struggling with connecting with our people where where do you suggest that we we look at to start
0: Ooh, that's a great question. So there's a few things. One is um we looked to figure out how to solve this at, at companies. And what we ended up doing was creating a collection of games, activities, and conversations. And they were designed to be done with even up, up to and above 200 plus people, even more uh at a time. And so you'd hop on Teams, Meet, Zoom with uh, everybody. Mm-hmm. And it would be a guided activity or game that you do in breakout rooms. So you actually compete as a teams as these small teams or do interactive conversations and, nice in breakout rooms. And what happens is throughout that investment of effort of playing together or having a conversation, people feel more connected across the company.
1: Interesting. So in as
0: little as like 10 or 15 minutes, people feel like they've had a rejuvenating conversation where they learned something where they played a game, where they had fun. And now Tasha from accounting and Steve from marketing know each other and it's no longer, oh, those people at accounting are such a pain. It's, oh, Tasha has so many kids. I'm surprised she even has time to answer an email in the evening. I'm sure she'll get back to us tomorrow. Right. So suddenly we've humanized the people we work with yeah, And there's a greater sense of familiarity. And this is really, really important, especially if your company has people coming into the office and the teams are spread out around the country, then it's really important that they get to know the people in their buildings. Because otherwise, why would I step foot into a building just to be on another virtual call? Yeah, And for those teams that are on virtual calls constantly, Unless you integrate some kind of way for people to feel a sense of belonging, it's not going to happen naturally. You have to be very focused on developing culture, not just letting it happen. Letting culture happen in a virtual environment is tantamount to saying, oh, I'm hoping my baby will feed themselves. Like it's a noble idea, but we unfortunately see stories about that kind of stuff in the news and it doesn't end well i like that then I like you're the- kind of hoping that you've hired personalities that create belonging on their calls rather than designing a culture if that makes sense
1: from that activity that does make sense i like that from the activity that you're saying would we follow that up with with you mentioned um that there needs to be a, an alignment between where you're going and where you are, kind of like setting a vision so that you yes. can. Get
0: it. I'll give you an example. There's a great book called Picking a Fight. Okay. And it points out that organizations that have something to fight for tend to do better. The key is in picking the right fight. So, for example, uh, I think in the book they describe uh that apple used to pick f- a fight with microsoft in the early days and then the apple fans got upset when microsoft bailed them out because at one point microsoft gave them millions of dollars
1: yeah i remember that
0: but that's essentially like saying oh we're going to go after the nazis or whatever it is and and, and then like you know
2: partnering <laughs> yeah. with them
0: yeah uh that that doesn't work and What does work is picking a fight bigger than the industry. So for example, Apple chose a new fight right now and they fight for privacy to protect the user. And notice they didn't pick a fight with any one company. They didn't pick a fight with Google or Meta or whatever. They said, no, we're going to fight bigger than the industry for something that all of us can strive towards, privacy. And so that's a fight that people can get behind and it directs the way we behave. Now at your companies, what is it that you are having your people fight for? Because that has the potential of giving a sense of belonging. It has us strive towards something. It has us invest effort into things. So my simple short-term recommendation is games, activities, conversations. Inventing them from scratch is difficult. Feel free to be in touch with me. I'll
1: make some suggestions. How do we get a hold of
0: you? Um, my website is John Levy T-L-B-J-O-N-L-E-V-Y, T like Thomas, I like lion, be like Boy. Uh, dot com. Mm-hmm. uh Also, my company is Influencers, which is spelled influence.rs. So it's pronounced influencers. Mm, got it. uh, and you can go on to the site. And we have games and activities there. But I'm also the... We have more sophisticated ones, so if people want to be in touch, and then I'm at John Levy TLB at on all the social sites, so I'm super easy to find and get a hold of.
1: Nice. And where where are you most active on social?
0: Uh, ooh, uh, I will probably respond most to messages through my site and occasionally on Instagram. Uh, I'm probably most active on Instagram is the the simple answer.
1: Perfect. I'll go follow you on Instagram. Sweet. Another follower. Another follower, buddy. We'll see that. <laughs> and your book, where should we go and get it if we're going? Oh, to it's it?
0: available everywhere. It's called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Connection, Trust, and Belonging. And it can be found on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, Books a Million, anywhere else that books are sold.
1: All right. While we were talking, I just ordered it on Amazon. There you oh, go. Oh, wow. Thank you. So I need to I need to read that one. John, John, thank you so much for jumping in with success. We appreciate you, man. Uh,
0: this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Justin. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.